Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14 will be the subject of our reading this morning and my preaching. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's hear it as such. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Our great God in heaven, we ask your blessing upon your word, and we ask that you would cause your word to take root and dwell deeply within us, so that we would be changed in the inner person. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an interesting story, one unique to Luke's gospel. There are a number of parables and stories like this, and even some miracles that are unique to Luke's gospel. This is one of them. This is the story told by Jesus to a a mixed crowd, but predominantly he has in view a specific subset of that larger group there before him. There are disciples, there are followers of various kinds, there are religious authorities, those within the Sadducee sect and Pharisee sects, and there are there are subsets even within the Pharisees themselves. And in, in our context, there has been an imperative in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 18 uh, that we are to pray, and to pray consistently, and to pray with patience. And there was motivation in prayer provided in this, that God's love is eternal for his elect people. And, and, and that as he is ear is tuned towards his people, he will respond with speedy justice and he will respond when he hears their cry, our cry. <clears throat> there have been also a number of other textual considerations concerning the subject of prayer and the group to whom the Lord Jesus is speaking this morning. And those would be found in chapter 15, verse 7. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There is a recurring theme in these chapters, and that is that Christ did not come, as my brother John loves to say, or has said a lot recently, Christ did not come for the righteous. Christ did not come to save the righteous. And that's predominantly even what's in view in verse 7, that all heaven rejoices with joy over one who repents, the 99 righteous persons 
who need no repentance. A similar sentiment is found in verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's also another relevant passage found in verse chapter 16, verse 15, where Jesus says, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Now, all of those within the hearing of Christ have heard all of those statements, those summary statements from the Lord Jesus Christ. They have heard, they have received what he has said, and there has been no truth that has pierced their heart. And so Jesus has been saying a number of things concerning the subject of prayer and concerning the Christian life and how we ought to live and how we ought to relate with each other within the congregation, within the body of Christ, but also further, uh, how we are to relate to God and how we carry on relationship with the Lord. And there we might have further questions concerning prayer. What should be our posture in prayer? What should we pray about? And what what does prayer look like? We have here an example this morning of something that really is not prayer. You might call it that, but it is not prayer. At least the individual set about to pray, or at least use that to, to, to describe what he is doing. And another who is praying in a way that we as human beings and those who are studying in the subject and the, and the method of prayer might say, well, that wasn't a prayer. But indeed it was. So here's a man who is praying and who may not think that he is praying, who actually prays. And a man who thinks he is praying, who we might think he is praying, actually doesn't pray. The irony is interesting. We might ask, well, what, what, what posture should I have in prayer? And, and, and is it important to the Lord what, what's going through my mind? And what about specific requests? And, and really the, the area I think that we often neglect, the inner perspective of the heart. Is it important as to where my heart is in relationship to God when I pray? The way that we treat others and our, our internal our internalized perspectives on ourselves, the Lord sees these things. And they have direct correlation to, as to whether or not we will be heard when we pray. So we see three things in this passage this morning. We see the Pharisee in prayer. We see the tax collector in prayer. And we see who is justified. Firstly, the Pharisee in prayer. The audience to whom Jesus is speaking are some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We know where this story is going. We know what the intention of the Lord is. Uh, the, the, The Lord's intention here is in this passage. He is speaking specifically to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The intention is to get them to no longer treat others with contempt and that they would no longer think of themselves as righteous and thus see their need of Christ. Well, largely who is in view in this passage are the Pharisees. And there were three sects of Pharisees. Uh, disciples of Shimei, uh, or Shimei, they're, they're very conservative, ultra-conservative, exceedingly legalistic. And then there were disciples of Hillel. They are, they are liberal, as it were, and, and they had uh, more of a, a, an easygoing approach to the law of God with a, a, a little sprinkling, as it were, of mercy and, 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 
There was a middle road. They were, they were followers of Gamaliel. And, of course, we know about Gamaliel. Uh, he is mentioned in Acts chapter 5. He stands up before the Sanhedrin and he says, look, as, as the Sanhedrin wants to put to death all the disciples of Christ, he says, let, let, let this proceed and see what, what comes of this movement. And they listen to his counsel. We also know him by way of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says that he himself was studied in the school of Gamaliel. Well, this illustration of prayer shows that God hears such prayers as this. Individuals who go before God protesting, stating their qualifications to be heard. It's, it's, it's like on the day you get married or the day that you, you get engaged to, to get down on one knee, young man, and you, and you, you offer yourself, your, 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 your ring to your beloved and you say, this is why I'm asking you to marry me because I, I'm, I'm, I'm handsome. Um, I've, I've got a good ability to provide. I think I'm a good provider. Uh, this is my yearly income. And uh, I also have these educational requirements that I've completed. And, and therefore, I, I'm, I'm studious. I'm, I'm academic. I'm, I also have these physical elements to me. I, I have, you know, whatever my hair is, uh, it's color. I have red hair. I have blonde hair. I have brown hair. I have black hair. It doesn't matter. But we might list all of our physical qualifications. I can bench press 220. Whatever it might be, it's all these qualifications that somehow justify the individual before this young woman who stands there waiting and and assessing, determining whether or not, yes, you are worthy to be married and worthy of her love and affection and eternal devotion. Well, not eternal, at least temporal. Well, that's what this Pharisee is doing. He's laying out, as it were, a number of reasons rather pridefully as to why he thinks God should receive him and hear his prayer. Now, we have to ask whether or not what this man says is in fact prayer. I I don't believe it is. He says simply this. He goes up and he says this as identified in verse uh, 11. God I thank you that I am not like other people. And so instantly, the first word is God. So he he is directing his thoughts towards God, but his immediate thought is of everyone else around him. And the immediate conclusion he comes to is, I'm not like everyone else. And the implication is, God, you should see this quite clearly. You should know that I'm not like anyone else. I am extraordinary. I am better than most. In fact, I, I think that I'm on the top upper 1% of humanity with regard to morality and religion, religious practice, and all that I am as an individual. Does he make any request? He makes no request. He does not ask for mercy. He does not ask for forgiveness. He does not make any statement that is worthy of God. Uh, by way of praise. He doesn't praise God for anything. He doesn't enumerate the qualifications that God himself possesses that determine whether or not we should worship him. And of course we should, because he is immutable and omnipotent, and he is sovereign, and he is omniscient. He knows all things. He sees all things. All things were created by his hand. This man doesn't in any way mention any of it. He doesn't 
single out God's intimate care for Israel or for God's people. He doesn't single out any of it. He doesn't speak of any messianic hope. He doesn't list his sins. He doesn't enumerate his many sins and ask God's forgiveness or pardon. He doesn't ask for mercy. He doesn't ask for grace. He asks for nothing. This is not prayer. There is that famous acronym used for prayer, ACTS, in prayer. And for any prayer really to be prayer, it ought to at least involve at least some portion of these elements of adoration and of confession of sin, adoration of God, confession of sin, thanksgiving offered to God for what he has done and for who he is, and supplication, asking of the Lord something. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. None of that is present in this man's prayer. His prayer is a self-description. It's a marking of his case. It's, it's a making of his case as to why he should be received of God. God, I thank you that I'm not like anyone else around me. And especially that I'm not like that person over there. There's a tax collector there in the synagogue or in the temple that day. They've gone up to the temple mount. And so he would make a self-description, a making of his case, a a self-comparison. He's making his case and then he compares. He compares himself to all sorts of people. I'm not like other men. I'm not guilty of extortion. I'm not guilty of extortion, he says, or a swindler, somebody who would take something by means of unjust or or improper balances or unjust economic means or uh, swindling is someone who says, well, I'll give you this for $100 and then gives them less than that for more money. It's like when you go to the car repair place and they tell you, well, it's going to cost this much for that particular job to be performed. And then they do that particular job and then you come back and they say, well, we're It's actually going to cost you double and your car is fixed and you can say nothing about it. He says, oh, I'm I'm, I'm thankful I'm not unjust, meaning and there's a great deal of of an incredible pride behind what he is saying. I'm not unjust. Uh, It's an incredible statement to say that this man is saying to God of all of my judgments and all of my internal assessments of people and of myself and of my own heart and of my own motivations, and as I make an assessment in, in the world and all of my calculations, I have never been wrong. That's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary statement. He goes further. I thank you that I am not an adulterer. And so he ignores the words of Christ who says, if you look upon someone with lust, whether male or female, regardless of who you are or what you are, the fact remains that you're guilty of adultery. And then lastly, he compares himself, and I'm not even like this tax collector. I don't hear an amen. I don't hear a thank you, God, or any request for anything. He just goes on. I I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. And he's done. That's that's his prayer. That's, That's what he's come to the Temple Mount that day for. I'm not anything like any one of these individuals. I'm certainly not like him. And 
This is all that I've done for you. You see, it's required of, uh, of the Jews to fast on the Day of Atonement once per year. But they were not required to fast on a weekly basis, certainly not a bi-weekly basis. But this man says, I fast bi-weekly. It's extraordinary. And more than this, I tithe everything I get. He's an extraordinary individual. And, and we should, in some way, stand back and admire uh, all the qualifications this man is able to complete. It's funny how when you, when an individual lifts themselves up in the eyes of, in their own eyes, there is an inevitable corresponding lowering of others in the same eyes. Whenever we exalt ourselves in our own name, there is always a corresponding squashing down of the qualifications and the excellence of everyone else. And that's how pride ascends. You see, when we decrease the value of others, then we are in, in, more inclined toward pride in self. And when we exalt others, we are more inclined toward taking a, a humble approach towards ourselves and our God. Well, this man really isn't praying. He's just bragging. You would ask, why is he praying at all? Maybe there's a nagging thought in the back of his mind I don't know that I measure up to all that God requires. We don't know. In his self-description, his inner internal attitude is one of bragging and of boasting. In his own righteousness and good works, there's no humility. He's comparing himself to others. And I'll tell you, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, when one day we stand in the presence of the Lord, we will not be comparing ourselves to anyone else except to him. He who is righteous and who dwells in perfect righteousness. This man is comparing himself to other persons rather than to God's righteousness. The one thing missing from his prayer is trust in God amongst many others. We can take him at his word. He's not a criminal, nor is he loathed, nor nor is he loathed by society. He's a one-woman man, most likely. If he's married, he most likely is. He's also very deeply religious. His practices go far above the requirements. And he is, by way of his own perception of his own superiority, by comparison, he's physically, observably, morally, religiously superior. And if he were to stand in this group or any other group, we would say, at least on the outside, wow, this, this is a good person. This, this person is extraordinary. And maybe we've met people like that. Many of us have. have. And we've seen persons like that out on television on Sunday mornings and throughout the week who hold themselves up as morally superior individuals, worthy of adulation and praise. And who in a matter of months or years we eventually see on their knees with tears confessing their sin. Or they've lost their ministry and all of a sudden we wonder where has so and so gone. <clears throat> I remember when I was a boy, the place to be was PTL. It was the, uh, it was the, the place to be. It was Tammy and... Uh, and and Jim Baker, Tammy Faye and Jim Baker, the, the, they of the air-conditioned doghouses out in the back of their homes. 
They were extraordinary people, extraordinarily rich. They, they, they were forebears of our present day Kenneth Copeland and uh, Creflo Dollar and all the rest of them. And everyone worshipped them. I remember a couple whom I deeply respected and loved uh, for many, many years and who died in Christ, thought it was the greatest thing when one day they went down to the PTL club and they met Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. I remember that 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 was the place to be. They were the place to meet and they were the people to meet. And yet one day sin occurred and they had to repent of their sin and their ministry was gone in, in a puff. God has a way of bringing low the proud. God has a way of bringing low, at least in our own estimation, to a point those who, who we are prone to adore, those whom we are prone to worship in, in, a vener, in, in a venerating sort of way. Well, this man, he was someone like that. He's someone that we would, we would think is a godly person, a moral person. Not, not, not if we heard the internal mechanism of their own self-assessment, but certainly if we looked at them on the outside. But here's the hard truth of this passage. The self-righteous, the self-righteous will not be justified before God, even though they are justified in their own eyes. And even if they make their complaint and they make their case before God, the self-righteous will not be justified You know, there is a place for as believers for, for us to say, Lord, I thank you that, that, that I have not been caught up in this particular sin. Lord, thank you that I have not gone down this particular road of self-destruction. Lord God, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for rescuing my marriage and and correcting me in the midst of my sin. And I thank you that I am no longer what I once was. Thank you, Lord, that that when we hear of someone else whom we have loved or cherished or respected falling, Lord, thank you that you have kept me from such sin and self-destruction. Not, as it were, to enumerate our many excellences, but to give thanks to God humbly in recognition that we are his own creation and that he himself has kept us from our own self-destruction. From our own self-destroying tendencies. There's a place for giving thanks before God and saying, Oh Lord, I could have been like that. Oh Lord God, but by your grace, that's where I would have gone. I know that if Christ hasn't saved me by his grace, that I would have been a a criminal. I would have been an angry man. I would have been a hateful person. I know that I I, am capable of great and grave sin. But God in his mercy has made me what I, I am no longer. And he has saved me by his grace and made me his own. The second thing we see in this passage is the tax collector in prayer. The tax collector in prayer. There's this, this is a this is a man that no one likes. This is a man that society hates. It's it's like an IRS agent. Only worse, 
Someone with authority to not only require of you what the government wants, but also further what he himself wants to be enriched by. So here's your tax. You owe $1,000 for the year, tax year 2021. But in fact, my, my collector's fee is an additional $375. What would you think about that? Well, that, that, that's reason to drag such a person into court. Well, in, in Jesus' day, the tax collectors were individuals who were raised up by the Roman authorities to go in amongst the people in an indigenous sort of way and collect the taxes. How can they be mad with their own and hateful? How could they resist and especially give the Roman muscle to that individual as they go into the community and tell them, look, this is what we expect of you. Here's your quota. Whatever else you get is yours. And that's what they did. And so they would have a bidding process and they would win the bid for that lucrative tax collecting um, area. Well, look at this man. He stands far off. Note his posture. He's standing far off from where the Pharisee is standing. The Pharisee is there front and center in the, in the, in the, in the place where prayers are offered. And, and we can see him front and center. He wants to be seen. He wants to be heard. And so the, the tax collector is somewhere far off to the side, barely able to be there, barely functioning, barely able even to speak. He stands far off. He can't lift his eyes. His head is so bowed down. And he beats his breast here is a guilty man. Here is a man overcome by guilt. And you think of what this man has done. He is a tax collector. It's obvious what he has done. He has is, he is, he is committed usury. He has abused tax uh, folk who owe taxes. And he has lied and he has self-enriched in his own coffers. And here is a thief. And he says one thing. He doesn't utter anything other than this. He begins in the same way that the other man did. God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Both speak to the same God. Both stand before God, and yet one man can barely stand, and the other stands boldly, not based upon the merit he has in Christ, but upon his own self, self-merit. self His request is simply, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's seeking relief from the penalty of his sins. He's seeking the removal of his guilt, and he's seeking that the penalty due his sins would be poured out in some way, other way upon another. And not upon himself. He feels the full weight of his sin. Like Christian from the Pilgrim's Progress. With that great burden upon his back. That he can't get rid of. He can't get it off. Until he sees the cross of Jesus Christ. And the one who died there for him. Be merciful to me a sinner. There's no self-comparisons. He doesn't say. I thank you that I'm not like that, that, that Pharisee. That hypocrite right there in front of me. I thank you that I'm not anything like him. And I thank you that I'm not like my fellow tax collectors. I'm the best tax collector of all. He doesn't say that. He's not looking at anyone but himself. He's not even aware of the Pharisees. He knows 
He's not saying, thank you, God, that I am not a hypocrite like him. His appeal is based entirely upon who God is and what God has done. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He believes that. He believes this. He believes that God is the only Savior. He believes in Isaiah 53 that the sins and the stripes that were due us were laid on Him. That's what He believes. And He says, God, have mercy on me. Apply your messianic promise. Apply your your propitiation and the expiation. The propitiation of your wrath and the expiation of my guilt. Lord, take away my guilt. Lord, do to, to Him what you have, what I deserve. He's not denying that God is just or that God owes to him his sin, the repercussions and the penalty of sin. His appeal is based entirely upon God as Savior. And so Jesus makes a summary at the end. And so we come to that third place, third point in the sermon this morning. Are you... I'm going to ask you a question, and it's based upon a sermon from, from Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher. And he, he t- entitled his sermon this, Are You Too Good to Be Saved? Are You Too Good to Be Saved? It's another way of saying that Christ did not come to save the righteous. Are you too good to be saved? If you're convinced of your own intrinsic goodness then there's nothing for you in Christ. There's nothing for you by way of salvation because you already have in your own mind received this this self-deluded truth that you are righteous. Christ came for those who are convinced that they are not righteous, that they are in need of a foreign, alien righteousness, not our own. Christ came to save those who who are conscious of their need to be saved. Christ came for those who who know that they are in need of salvation, who are not self-promoting, bragging, boasting, prideful, self-righteous persons. If you're convinced of your own personal goodness, that the works that you have done flow from out of your own heart, that they are yours, that you are righteous and they make you righteous, You'll never see your need of Christ. And you're not in a position where God can justify you through saving faith. Because of your spiritual pride, you have removed yourself. You have removed yourself from the provision of the perfect Savior and a perfect righteousness. Are you too good to be saved? If you believe your relationship with God is based upon what you do or upon something that belongs to you or something that flows out of you or that God is pleased with you as you are without a Savior, well, you're, you're lost. You're lost. It grieves me to say it, but you, if you don't see your need of Christ, then Christ is not yours. But if you see your need of Christ, if you're convinced... O wretched man that I am, if you're convinced that you are a sinner, then Christ is for you. You have only to believe. Galatians 2.16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith 
in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, you're saying, well, yes, pastor, I am a believer and I, I understand this passage. But, you know, even as believers, we can pull ourselves into faulty ways of thinking and miss out on the blessing of God. It's quite possible that it's quite certain that there are people in the church who who do all the right things. They come to church Sunday on Sundays. They are faithful. They sit in the pew. They when 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 tasks are brought before the congregation, they do them. They have a servant's heart. They are wonderful folk. They can carry on conversations and talk about biblical themes. And perhaps they are even gifted to speak theologically in clear theological terms that impress everyone around them. But if you are not convinced that you are deeply immersed in sin, that you are a sinner because of your standing in Adam, and more than that, that you have actually transgressed the law of God, you have not done what you ought to have done, and you've done the things that God himself has expressly said that you must not do, then Romans 7 is for you, where the Apostle Paul says, O wretched man that I am, the good that I would do I have not done, and the evil that I would not do I have done. That is not, that is not a passage, though some have said, that is not a passage about a person pre, pre-conversion. That is about a Christian who is a believer, post-conversion. Someone who is struggling with a sense of guilt, over who they are and what they have done. And where does Paul go from that thought? Oh, thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is salvation in Christ. And you and I must turn away from every faulty thought that says, I am good and the good that I have done wins me favor and enters me directly and immediately into the presence of God, thus forgetting that no We only have entrance before God. We can only boldly approach the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. And by virtue of his righteousness. You are a child of God. And this is for everyone who doubts and struggles uh, with assurance and wonders whether or not. Am I a child of God? I I see my sin. Am I a Christian? Am I certain, as I work out my salvation with fear and trembling, am I certain that I have a standing in Christ? That Christ is my Savior, that my sins have been taken away, and that that the Lord is my Savior and I have the promise of eternal life. Is this true of me? Dear friend, you are not a child of God because of your perfections. You are not in the family of God and Christ didn't die for you because you have perfect prayers or because you have perfect times of devotions, or you you read the Bible perfectly, or you know and memorize the Bible perfectly. You're not a child of God because you've lived a perfect moral life. You're a child of God because Christ Jesus died for your sins. You're a child of God because of the eternal love of God the Father for a sinner broken and beaten down by sin. You're a child of God because of God's infinite and eternal love and the infinite and eternal benefit of Christ in his blood.
May God assure you of Christ Jesus and of his the efficacious nature of what he has done, of his sacrifice, of his body and blood broken for you this morning. Through God's m- merciful justification of your person, through faith in Jesus Christ, your s- guilt has been removed, your sins have been transferred to him, and his righteousness has been imputed to your account, justified as an act of God's free and sovereign grace. May God continue to enable and help us to remember rightly in our transactions of prayer as to who we are and as to what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks to you for your word and we ask your forgiveness of our sins for our sometimes faulty misunderstanding of who we are and our sometimes approach to you with a certain sense of spiritual pride over as to what we think we are. Oh Lord, we do make assumptions about our the state of our souls. We sometimes do believe that we deserve a little better treatment, a little better standing, a little better lot in life because of what we have done. And how we have given ourselves to you. We sometimes believe, O God, we are entitled to something because, well, we have served you. And we have served you well. But Lord God, convince us and show us that no, our life is to be one of continuing and unmitigated thankfulness. Because we know and we never forget that we are who we are in Christ because of Christ. Lord, keep us from spiritual pride and arrogance. Keep us humble. Help us to be like this man who approached you and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, how often I have found myself, oh God, crying that very thing. Therefore, Lord, help us and show us that if we are in Christ truly, our sins are forgiven. The mercy of God has rained down fully upon our head. There is no need to be afraid or frightened. If we are a child of God truly, we are justified. We are are being progressively sanctified. And one day we will be glorified. We will stand with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven with unapproachable joy, giving thanks and praising our Savior. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see this, that our our joy is to praise Christ, not self. Humble us, O God, before you, that Christ might be glorified. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.